Welcome to Eudaimonia, the podcast that is all about flourishing. Plug in, relax, and get ready for the goodness as we explore the traits and practices that can help you thrive in life. With your host, Kim Forrester. How often do you get out into nature? Or perhaps more importantly, how often do you reconnect with the nature that resides within you? Dr. Simon Atwood is the head of conservation for WWF Singapore, otherwise known as the Worldwide Fund for Nature. He's an agroecologist, avid birdwatcher, musician, and yoga instructor. Now today, it is my absolute delight to be sitting with Simon to talk about why it's vitally important to cultivate an affinity with nature if you want to create a truly fulfilled life. Simon, absolute pleasure to have you here in my home with my menagerie of animals. Now let's get straight to the science. You are a scientist um, who happens to work in ecology and in the field of conservation and nature. So there are numerous studies that suggest that we're better, we are better off when we interact with nature. So let's explore some of the studies that you know of. Okay, so there's been I should point out that this is one of those huge areas of research that's really starting to take off. There are an awful lot of universities, departments within universities, um, and also government departments as well, um, who are commissioning this kind of research, who are really looking into the mental and the physical benefits of, of being in nature in some format. Now, the physical might not come across as particularly surprising because, you know, you're out getting exercise, physical activity, fresh air, sunlight, vitamin D, you know, those sort of things. And so you, you would reasonably expect that to have a fairly positive benefit compared to, say, staying home, lying on the couch or whatever. But what's been really, really interesting, and I think the stuff that's being really pushed at the moment, is um, there's a couple of areas. One is the... Um, is, is the mental health benefits associated with, mm. with being in nature. Mm-hmm. There's been a, an enormous amount of work with that. There are uh, really interesting ones around recovery of patients. Wow. Patients with all sorts of ailments, okay? So yeah. there basically been, uh, there was a study um, some years ago now. It's quite an old one, but it's, I think it's probably been sort of repeated with a slight tweak um, and moved into other areas. But basically looking at uh, recovery times of patients in hospitals where they couldn't see a view of blue sky trees green that kind of thing mm-hmm. and randomized trials where patients could see those sort of elements so they had basically those who didn't have a view of nature those who had a view of nature those with a view of nature were um, increasing uh, their recovery rates uh, significantly wow. getting basically getting better quicker I've seen a lot of those studies. Um, I know there was a Swedish study that said that people who live in rural areas are less likely to get psychosis and depression than people in urban areas. Um, I love your study there about how we recover better when we're surrounded by nature. One fascinating thing I read recently was the amazing effect on our brain when we go barefoot on the ground. Now, I was looking for an image to go with your podcast, and I thought, I'm going to get a photo of someone's barefoot on the ground. And do you think I could find one? All of the photos that I found were of people in their shoes in nature. Um, That seems to be a really disturbing trend that we're literally removing ourselves from the earth. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that physical point of contact is a really, really interesting one. It might say a great deal about the way that footwear has been marketed <laughs> over the past few hundred years that that's, you know, um, shoe manufacturers and marketers want to make a lot of money out of that. Um, it's also obviously, you know, I suppose there are safety issues with, with going barefoot. Um, but principally, yes, there is this idea that if you are a, a barefoot, then you do have a direct connection to the earth. I suppose one could, you know, start to look at that, you know, how does that relate to things like reflexology and pressure points and those sort of things. Um, I don't know how much it has been done in terms of studies on that particular topic, but I can give my own, this is purely anecdotal, but some years ago I was living in Malaysia and I developed repetitive strain injury due to working on a laptop with really, you know, awful posture and all the things that scientists do periodically where you just hunched over a laptop 10 hours a day. And uh, it, it became, you know, quite a problem. Um, a lot of pain in forearms and some loss of motor neuron function in my hands and crazy stuff like that. And one thing that I, I started to notice was that when I went hiking, let's say hiking with shoes on, in, in, so in sort of forested areas and whatever, um, the pain disappeared. So you would be barefoot? Even if I wasn't, being in that environment. Then I started doing barefoot walking well in the forest. And that seemed to have an even more profound effect where it would just instantly disappear. And then I'd get back home and it would start again. So the, there, was, there was almost this um, connection between being in an urban, suburban, highly artificial system and feeling you know having like a really kind of 21st century ailment that whole rsi associated with, with with too much computer use and then being completely out of that and in a system minus shoes in particular where you, you're really doing what we've been doing for hundreds of thousands of years which is basically trampling through the bush barefoot almost some kind of like i don't want to say spiritual reconnection but certainly like a psychological neuro um connection which led to some sort of neurological response i.e pain transmitters blocked out i you know my muscles are sufficiently relaxed because i'd relaxed yes. and it disappeared and then you get back to the city you're all tense again oh there it goes well it's one thing i noticed when i travel back to new zealand because not many of my listeners may know this but in new zealand a lot of people tend to go barefoot in the summer uh it is quite common to see someone going to the local supermarket barefoot um and a lot of other cultures are horrified at our lack of footwear in new zealand however we do tend to be a very grounded very happy kind of folk and so i do wonder with a lot of green space and a lot of natural connection yeah, so i, I mean, wonder I, I, if it's a natural thing you know, we're starting to get papers in some of the fairly, and uh, you know, most sort of revered medical journals. You know, I mean, the, the Lancet does a sort of version um, now on planetary health. Mm. So there are all sorts of issues here around if you conserve natural areas, green areas, agricultural systems that contain, you know, that are not basically like an, uh, an industrial agricultural system. Obviously, you're going to get all sorts of other benefits out of that. I mean, you know, carbon sequestration and all those kind of things. But what are the co-benefits around physical, but particularly mental, emotional health? There's another one in there as well, uh, and that is in the area of pedagogy. So looking at children's learning capacity. You know, they're stuck in a classroom, uh, 25 kids all trying to get attention, noise, all the rest of it, versus children 
learning the same kind of things, but actually sat outside, or even better, sat in kind of like a wooded system, a woodland or forested mm. system. And the study that I read recently, I, they looked at this and found that um, children's attention rates and ability to stay on task and then ability to actually take on board the information that they were being taught was actually greater when they were outside. And you've got all things like, you know, forest school systems and that sort of thing now, which are really sort of taking off. Personal anecdote here, um, my daughter was suffering with quite severe anxieties a couple of years ago, and we were living in quite a busy place here in Singapore. And one of the decisions I made for her mental health was to move us to another part of the island. And as you know, we're now back on to a beautiful part of the forest and it's very quiet where we are. And her mental health has just improved exponentially over the last couple of years. And and I truly believe it's due to the fact now that we have a connection to nature. You would certainly expect that to have some sort of positive element i mean isolating you know the causes are obviously always very very difficult but it's, um yeah you can be pretty sure that it's going to be contributory so not everyone's going to have that opportunity to sort of move across town and and live near the forest do you think there are ways that we can incorporate um a natural connection into our daily life regardless of where we live or how the government deems yeah. uh, you know how the government approaches creating natural environments around us what can we do in our homes for instance yeah i think so um i mean i think that it depends on the level that you you kind of on i mean if if you're if you're in a system where you've got you know you have a house and a garden then it's relatively easy yeah. you simply step out into your garden you can cultivate your garden such that it starts to have elements of nature in there. It doesn't have to be, you know, paved from one end to the other, uh, although that's obviously an increasing trend in a lot of um, you know, Western gardens. If you're in a, a, a situation like yourselves where you've got little blocks of secondary forest, little parklands nearby, then try and make a point of getting out in those. I'm going to say as much as possible, but, you know, at least once a day. Let's say you're not in such a position. You don't have green space nearby, um, you don't have a garden. Most people don't. Mm. You're in an apartment. Your view, it's a city, it's concrete. Now, I've, I've lived in that kind of situation um, before. And the way that we sort of dealt with it was very much to have potted plants pretty much right. everywhere. Yeah. So we, we almost ended up with this kind of miniature forest on our balcony. If you haven't got a balcony, then, you know, put them in places in your house where you do have that green element. Have that in the workspace um just that capacity to be able to see that kind of light spectrum is really really important i mean i I guess putting it into the context of humans as a species you know we've we've only really lived in these really large highly concreted highly modified urban systems of this kind of scale that we're dealing with you know it's it's probably less than four or five hundred years i mean you know, prior to that, it would have been relatively small conurbations. Even the larger cities would have been fairly well connected very quickly into hamlets and then kind of rural systems there. So if you look at, you know, how old's our species? You know, Homo sapiens sapiens is like 150,000 years, 200,000 years, and then a much longer lineage of, of other ancestors prior to that, stretching back millions of years. We essentially grew up as part of a relatively natural ecosystem and i suspect that there's some elements of that kind of retained 
in terms of what makes us tick psychologically and also what unnerves us psychologically. This is one of my main messages that I share in, in almost all of my work is, is getting people to understand we it's not that we go out into nature. We are nature. But, but there's a huge denial about this. Well, I think there's, there's two things. There's a, there's a general lack of appreciation of this being the case. We, we look at our sort of situation of the last um, 30, 40, 50 years where we're highly urbanized in some countries, maybe going back 100, 200, 300 years, certainly post-industrial revolution. And we assume that that has separated us from nature. Um, I know we've sort of chatted about this before, but um, I guess you can go back almost to the the Italian Renaissance when there was that kind of separation of, of, of humans and nature and that real distinction and René Descartes after that. So you have this divergence and that divergence is quite a dangerous thing because the one aspect is that we, we fundamentally are still part of natural systems. Um, and when those natural systems start to change at a large scale, they can severely impact us. Um, I mean, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to you know take out the, the, the climate change stick at this point because it is the most um, heavily publicised one, and it's the one that is causing the most concern, um, and it's the one that is really bringing home to us the idea, or it certainly will be bringing home to us the. Not so much the idea, but the fact that we still are part of natural systems. Mm. We may not like to be, and we may try and distance ourselves from it, and we may try and control it and shape it to our own desires and demands. But ultimately, we can only do that so far because we keep, we are just going to keep butting up against physical reality, biological reality, mm. chemical reality. Mm-hmm. No amount of virtual reality and wishful thinking is going to get rid of those immutable facts. It seems to me then that this disconnection that we have from nature goes far beyond where we choose to go and spend our time. And I can see that there are simple steps we can take. If we have children, for instance, let's take them out onto a parkland and take their shoes off and let them walk on grass. So it's real, real basic stuff. You said, what can we do? Yeah. Okay, so, you know, learn five common tree species where you live. Anyone can do that. There's enough resource on the web to be able to just go out and do that. Do you think, though, that it's too late for some people? And I know because you work with a lot of Singaporeans and other nationalities who haven't necessarily had a connection to nature. You grew up outside an industrial area um, in England, in northern England. Um, Do you think that a connection with nature is a muscle that we can strengthen? Or do you feel that, look, if you haven't connected with nature by the time you're 30 or whatever, then then it's all over? I I think that a lot of that stuff, like anything, it's best learned when you're young. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, if you want to learn a language, learn it, you know, start learning it before you're five, six, seven years old. If you want to... If you want to be a piano virtuoso, you best be practicing those scales by the age of five. You know, yeah. so there's those sort of cliches. And yet there are so many examples of people who've come to stuff later in life and have absolutely not just excelled at it, even if they haven't excelled at it. They've, they, they've just it's improved the, 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 um, the enjoyment and the value of their life immensely. So I think that... The only obstacle I can see is that if you're older, you know, so let's say 30 years old onwards and you have been completely urban and you have no interest in nature at all, what's going to be the hook 
that brings you in on that one. Now, you know, it might be some sort of circumstance or you, you end up living in a different place. Or it might be, it might simply be that, um, you know, you have kids yourself and through one thing or another, they start to show an interest. And so then you find yourself in that kind of situation. Uh, is it too late to learn? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I mean, it's, it's, and I think it's one of those things that is just, it's inherently part of our makeup as a species that after a bit of an initial jolt of being outside in the, in the fresh air, people do start to relax. Their stress levels do start to go down. Different endorphins do start to be produced, which actually start to calm people down. Um, studies, again, moving back to the science a little bit, there have been studies looking at people's breathing rates and heart rates when they're in an urban system compared to a rural or a more natural system, blood pressure as well. Well, this is what I'm thinking, is that some people who have had very little opportunity to connect with nature, who Mm. don't feel that they need it in any way, I'm perfectly happy inside my concrete jungle. Do you think it's possible that some people simply don't get the benefits from nature? You know, people say, I hate being out. Some may say, I hate being outside and I hate the mosquitoes and the flies and I just want to be inside. Do you think it's possible that there are some humans on the planet who are better off inside than they are out in nature? That's a great question. I think there are, you know, there are probably individuals who feel that they get what they want from their life from an entirely urbanized and therefore completely sort of modified existence but until they're put in that kind of situation how would they know now Mm. you came going back to the start of our chat you you mentioned about the rate of of mental health in urban areas averaged against rural areas and it's you know we'd seem to have there's pretty much a mental health crisis in 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 a lot of urban areas so i think that people may not be aware of exactly how damaging not how damaging living in an urban system can be because you know I live in an urban system I've lived in urban systems before and and, and it's I'm not saying you know, I'm, I'm not proposing that we stop doing that you know a lot of jobs are in urban areas so that's going to be of course we're going to be living in urban areas and of course that's absolutely fine as far as it goes because that's the reality in which we exist because of the numbers of people that we've got and that sort of centralisation of of jobs and commerce and housing and all the rest of it. Should people be exposed on a semi-regular basis to something which is not that, which has a reduction in pace, which gives them fresh air, which gives them physical exercise, which allows them to see some sort of horizon? Yes, I think they should. If they don't like it after the first occasion and, and all that, all that fresh air is freaking them out. Do I think they should persist? Yes, I think they should. So perhaps the people who feel they can flourish in an urban environment should get out into, it doesn't even have to be the wild, does it? Just a, just a parkland or a golf course um, and, and enhance that sense of flourishing. I mean, lots of cities have pretty good green space, some better than others. Singapore's pretty good. Um, and you think about a typical lunchtime, very often you will find people, you know, central London, you will find people who bought their sandwiches from the sandwich bar. And they're not sitting in the sandwich bar, weather dependent, obviously. They're actually out in some sort of area where there is um, a, a small amount of grass, where there are 
flowers and that have been planted by the the local council where there are some trees people do seem to gravitate towards that at the weekend it's even more i mean you think about any sort of urban park on a nice sunny day usually rammed right? i mean so it's, it's not like people in the urban areas are, are, are going no i want to sit in my shoebox 24 7 they are actually out there enjoying it so what i'd like my listeners to hear from all that is that if they want to connect more with nature and if they want to bring nature perhaps into their communities and into their cities, there are things that they can do. They, they oh, can huge. plant community gardens. They can go to their local council or, or their government um, representatives and demand more green spaces in the area. You know, one of the things you can do is, I mean, I know people are, are tight for time, but... There are so many organisations who have great voluntary schemes. There are citizen science schemes where you can go and do water quality testing if that's what you want to do. There are annual events in most of the big cities in the world of, you know, garden bird watch, that sort of thing. I think the one in the UK, they have like about well over a million people participating. There are all sorts of activities one can be involved in in terms of more active stuff like tree planting, um, weed control, um, educational activities uh you know taking groups out to just basically be in nature look at stuff give a name to that plant give a name to that bird learn something about it uh, well, well let's go to the, the you know the figurehead of all this david attenborough um I'm, I'm gonna have to paraphrase because i can never remember exact quotes but it's basically the premise is that if if you don't know about nature if you can't identify it stick a name on it you you don't know anything about it then you don't care about it and if you don't care about it you won't attempt to conserve it now if you take that all the way down the line if if we've got you know an urbanized generation coming through who who don't value nature can't stick a name on it don't identify with it and can't identify it they're they're not going to have an interest in conserving it which then doesn't put the necessary pressure on governments to have legislation and active programs to do this. So it's I cannot overemphasize how vitally important that is. Now, just drawing back to about 15 minutes ago, you mentioned about the value of nature, what you know, what benefits do we get? Yeah. I didn't get too much into that, but I'll, I'll resurrect that topic again because if we park that idea for a moment of we need to value it in order to pressurize companies and governments and so on and, and, and other individuals into conserving it. Why do we need to do that? And it's not just because of the intrinsic value and the moral value and the ethical aspects of, well, you know, it's got every right to exist as much as we have. It's actually, we are dependent upon it. We are dependent upon nature. And, and it comes back to the idea that we're part, not just part of nature, but there's, if you get into the science, there's this terminology, which is it's a bit clunky, but it's 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 sort of gaining in popularity, and I'll use it because it's the standard term. It's this idea of ecosystem services. Mm-hmm. It's what does nature do for us? What does it give us? And generally for free, and which is not valued at all, really, in economic markets. So very often you have these things called externalities when there's some sort of development, and there's usually there's a, a, a positive financial gain there might be a huge agricultural yield. There's infrastructure going in. There's development of housing and so on. But the loss is often of the natural world. Yes. 
and that's very rarely accounted for. It is starting to take off a little bit. Some of my colleagues are working a great deal on sustainable finance, and so they're starting to touch in that area a great deal. I'm starting to get some real traction in that area as well. Um, now, this idea of ecosystem services, it can be things like pollination, it can be pest control, it can be carbon lockup, so that we're actually you know, not seeing the... the at the moment, you know, the catastrophic buildup of, of carbon in the atmosphere. We all know, you know, where that's kind of headed at the moment. Um, and there, there are many, many kinds of these different services. And it's the idea that, you know, water quality is another one. Um, control of water quantity, so flood regimes and that sort of thing. And when we start to degrade nature and lose it and modify systems so much we start to lose those ecosystem services oh. now in some cases we might be able to substitute them with artificial um, versions so instead of wetlands uh, to uh, improve water quality we have sewage systems sanitation works and so on they're extremely expensive um, they have to be maintained and in some cases you know they're not necessarily going to be um, able to meet demand so for instance that's something let's say with climate change um, everybody you know is sort of across the idea of increasing temperatures um, but the other one that we get is, is shifting rainfall patterns but also shifting rainfall location oh, yeah. so that idea that places that previously had abundant water the rainfall belts yes. are actually starting to move often out into the sea so that areas that previously had re relatively reliable rainfall, southern Australia, for instance, uh, periodically reliable rainfall, let's say, because they've always had you know intermittent droughts. But you're starting to see movement of those weather systems long-term um, off into the Southern Ocean. So there's, how, do, how do you substitute for that? How do you have desalinization on a scale that's going to allow that to be replaced as an ecosystem service? So it's this idea that we have to value nature because we are dependent on it. Yes. We might not like the fact we are, and we might not even realise that we are, but it's another biological, physical, chemical reality. Um, what was it Al Gore used the term in his film, Inconvenient Truth? It's yet another... I don't know if it's an inconvenient truth, but it's, it's certainly it's an under-recognised truth. That is um, very deep and really important, and I hope the listeners um, stop and think about just how interwoven we are with the natural environment, not just in our local area or even our regional area, but globally how much we rely on the natural environment. And Rhea, the 15-year-old Labrador, has woken up. I can hear her ticking around now. So final question for you then, Simon, and I ask this question of all of my guests. Um, can you suggest a morning reminder for my listeners so this can be a, a practice a ritual an affirmation that they can undertake each day to help them reconnect with nature or reconnect with their natural selves yeah okay i would say i'm, I'm going to give two one is a bit old school and one is a bit sort of more um 21st century i think that the old school one is just simply find some element of the natural world in a morning mm. you get up now again you know if you've got a garden great just walk out into your garden 
if you haven't then you know just be cognizant for 10-15 seconds of something that is alive that isn't human and just be amazed by it the other one and I, 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 if I was a bit more prepared, I'd have some recommendations, wouldn't I? But there, there's, there are so many great apps now around appreciation of nature, particularly citizen science stuff, where people can basically, you know, they, they see some aspect of wildlife, they can record it, geolocate it, and, you know, click send, and it stores, and it goes to central databases, often global databases. Um, I think there's, there's one called iNaturalist. There's one for birds globally called eBird. And you can basically just record this stuff on your phone. You know, go online, find out what apps are out there that that actually will allow you to record sightings, and you know they'll go into some sort of central database, which are actually actively helping conservation. So, uh, helping people like me to actually try and stem the, 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 you know, the the, the quite frankly catastrophic biodiversity loss that we've got going on at the moment. I mean, you know, so uh, you know, my organisation WWF. we, every couple of years we release the Living Planet Report. We're talking 60% decline in biodiversity globally. 60%. It's hard to even grasp what that looks like. Even for me, I've been doing this stuff for like 25 years, it's hard for me to get my head around what the, what that looks like and what the implications of that are. And I think it's important right now to let people know that they can go to www.org. They can just go to Google and whatever country you're in, um, go and check out what WWF are doing in your country. If you're in Singapore, wwf.sg. Um, um, see what we're doing. You can volunteer if you if you so choose. Um, lots of activities you can get involved in. Lots of campaigns that we're doing, which you know really speak to what what's happening in people's lives. We're certainly working a great deal around sustainable seafood, microplastics, that sort of thing. Uh, international wildlife trade. But this stuff's happening globally, you know. So wherever you are listening to this in the world, there's there's somebody you can connect with. There is an organisation who want you yes. to help them, and they really do because they they need people right now. And vitally, you will flourish from having that connection with a natural environment. Absolutely, you'll feel better. Excellent. Dr. Simon Atwood, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here with me today. We better go downstairs and save the 15-year-old Labrador who wants to get out the door. He wants to get upstairs. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks so much. Bye. Pleasure. Cheers. It was the Lebanese poet Khalil Gibran who wrote, Forget not that the earth delights to feel your bare feet, and the winds long to play with your hair. You've been listening to the Eudaimonia podcast. If you'd like to learn more about how to live a truly flourishing life, please subscribe and check out eudaimoniapod.com for more inspiring episodes. I'm Kim Forrester. Until next time, be well, be kind to yourself, and celebrate the natural being inside of you. Eudaimonia.